Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. As a humanist, my faith lies in humanity, not in the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. A common conception of atheists, even among atheists, is that the only reason they'd come near religion with a ten-foot pole would be to bash it. So on today's episode, I'll talk about why atheists, including myself, would want to study religion. My guest today is Owen Cook, an atheist, teacher, singer-songwriter, and, as it happens to be, my roommate. He's someone who spent years studying religious traditions, at first to try and disentangle himself from his evangelical Christian upbringing, and later as a way to find mental solace and compassion within an atheist worldview. Stick around till the end of the show when I ask Owen to invent a word or concept to help skeptics talk about sacred and spiritual things without using words like sacred and spiritual. Owen's concept is doing dishes, which may or may not mean what you think it means. And now, my conversation with Owen Cook. Welcome to the show, Owen. Hey, thanks. Good to be here in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) When I was first moving to New Orleans, I remember we were sitting out on the porch uh, together and just kind of getting to know each other. We started to talk about, like, Gnosticism or Mm -hmm. or Kabbalah or something like that. And we talked for a while about it. And I, I, I... I remember I had a, just a good feeling about about mm. that. It's like this is this is a guy that knows about religion, knows about these these mystical ideas. And then I went to the bathroom, and on the on the toilet, I remember seeing a copy of the other Bible. I think it was oh, called. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was like a, a compilation of, of Gnostic myths and mm-hmm. and uh, from the heretical texts. Yeah, yeah, that didn't make it into the the canonical Bible. And I just came out with a, a smile on my face. I was like, <laughs> this this is a guy that I I, I can see myself living with. <laughs> <laughs> They're interesting stories. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time talking about religion, various aspects of it. We've, I think, both spent a lot of time over the years reading about different religious traditions and at various times experimenting with different uh, religious practices. Mm-hmm. And yet both of us are atheists. Both of us are skeptical about the supernatural claims. Sure. For this first episode, I want to talk about why atheists might be interested in researching religion, studying it, mm-hmm. and practicing some of its teachings Mm. Mm. well i think my first reaction to that would just be that i think why you asked me to do this and to be a subject for this for an interview is that i practice meditation um, zen meditation specifically or roughly depending on how you view that Mm -hmm. and so i can only really speak for myself in that it's just personally beneficial Mm. what specifically do you find um, valuable about meditation the best way to, to, to describe that is, is just, I think, how I came to that, which was really I was depressed and anxious and was having a really hard time just getting through the days. And Zen meditation was just something that it was kind of a last resort in lieu of being able to find a therapist at the time or some kind of medical or, or therapeutic solution to the situation. And... I just experimentally started doing that, not as really anything about a spiritual path, but just as a coping mechanism, you know, for getting through things. And that practice simply gave me the space and 
the space and like the courage to confront and to work with anxieties that I had, negative thought patterns, ruminations. It was kind of like DIY cognitive behavioral therapy just by listening to yourself, I guess. Yeah. If that makes sense. A very kind of practical psychological application sure. of this very ancient spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and for sure. I mean, uh, for me as well, I'm fascinated with the idea that these spiritual practices are really a kind of psychological toolkit mm-hmm. that various religions have developed over the the centuries. And one one of the the reasons I'm uh, so fascinated with rituals and ceremonies and meditation as well as mm-hmm. contemplation, introspection, all of this is, I think, a way in which we can better get to know ourselves better. Sure get to know our own minds and I think it's it, it becomes a, a really powerful way of becoming more fully human mm-hmm. yeah yeah and developing like how you said an awareness of yourself knowing your own mind I think that that's the one thing broadly that inner traditions obviously have in common is that they're inner right one of the things that really fascinates me about our religious traditions is that I think of them as kind of projections of our inner human psyche. Mm-hmm. And religions are the souls, so to speak, of societies. You find in them characteristics of what that society values, how it sees itself in relation to the universe. Mm-hmm. Its own internal structures, its own internal stories are uh, constructed through mythic narrative, through moralities, through philosophies, sure. yeah. and uh, it's a part of the human fabric of, of, mm-hmm. of culture mm-hmm. and, and, and the human mental universe. Sure, sure, yeah. So I want to ask, going backwards a little bit, I was wondering um, if you could speak a little bit about how you were raised and how you got from there to here. How I got from there to here. Well, I mean, I was raised in a uh, Protestant evangelical household. My parents were very involved with the church. I mean, religion was kind of the largest factor in my family's life. We'd go to church three times a week, twice on Sundays, once on Wednesdays. And I, yeah, I mean, I was, I was raised in that until I left home when I was 18. In terms of my relationship with that, that's a tricky thing. I never really internalized that tradition, I guess you could say. I have my problems, my conflicts with it, the constraints that I felt that it placed on me growing up. So I think by the time I was 15 or 16, I was getting into, I was kind of abandoning that, just rebelling against against that religion. I think religious ideas were kind of brought back to me. That became an area of interest through being introduced to Carl Jung, really, by a teacher I had in high school which kind of then shifted my relationship with those ideas to something that could be potentially valuable and interesting to to look at, as you were saying, just as an, ex- as an expression of humans. And so that kind of moved me into more of a comparative religion situation. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what specifically about Young's work kind of attracted you at the time or really struck you? Sure. I mean, the idea that basically just the... I guess it was, it was Young and like Joseph Campbell. I mean, seeing that there's a regularity to myth cycles. Across the globe, across cultures. Sure, sure, exactly. And that just fascinated the hell out of me. At that point, I think I was. it was even less about like personal salvation or personal religious practice. That just was just an intellectually fascinating fact. And then also, as much as I had discounted my... My parents' religion for myself; those those claws were in deep fear of fear of 
damnation. These things don't go away quickly for certain people. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think that that, uh, seeing a different perspective on that, like began the process of kind of freeing me from, from those fears, I guess. When you're seven years old, that's... It can be traumatic. 100%. Yeah, that can be really intense, and that can be something that has, has effects that, that, that go so deep and are so unconscious. I mean, that's really the process for me, that it was... I, I, I then had a fascination with religion that was partially purely intellectual, but partially was, was a reckoning with all of these things that I had to extricate myself from to become fully, I guess, self-accepting. Mm-hmm. and self-realized outside of a context of something that I was brought up in, but something that I had actually made that was my own. And so then after that, the conscious aspect of my religious quest for a long time was that I was trying to find some kind of ancient truth. So I was always interested in the oldest things, you know, the sources of the sources, mm-hmm. um, going back and tracing things down to their, to their, their archaic roots kind of fascination with uh, occultism or esoteric texts all of it i found out about hinduism just for instance and learned about the like just the antiquity of that mm-hmm. the philosophy of that was attractive to me at the time the sort of pantheism and the you know everything being sacred everything being divine um, was really refreshing to me coming from like the fallen world you know upbringing and such yeah. but then also along with that that sense of like historical authority was attractive to me and the fact that like the those the rig they had been floating around for who knows how many tens of thousands of years as an oral tradition like leaning on on a seeming authority that was just much older than anything that i was brought up with so that fascinated me but then yeah occultism i mean came into it i went to college thinking that i was going to study eastern philosophies and then ended up having an incredible class or an incredible professor, Daniel Falk at the University of Oregon, who was a preeminent Dead Sea Scrolls scholar. So a scholar of the origins, the occult, esoteric origins of Christianity, or that gets academically dubious to say that those are the, <laughs> the origins, but the, the, the milieu that created, that, that Christianity came out of, you know, around mm-hmm. the, the turn of the eras, that highly what we would call like a cult or esoteric or syncretic worldview that was happening in the Hellenistic world in the Mediterranean at that time that yeah Gnosticism came out of man this is getting very hoity-toity right here in a syncretic Hellenistic worldview but basically just taking all of these all of these and that seems so esoteric and exotic to us now because they're so old and so forgotten and so just strange Mm -hmm. and then just smashing them all together so that became that and then that of course brings up yeah you get down into that and that's also not even necessarily spiritually fascinating I also just like a great story you know I come from a different background, a different upbringing, raised Jewish. My uh, mother and father were from the former Soviet Union, and there's a kind of understanding that no reasonable person believes in mm-hmm. religion. There is a secularism and skepticism that I was brought up with that I, I think uh, if I had one person I could point to where I inherited that from was probably my mother. She is a psychologist as, as well, so she viewed mental illness. Religion as most likely the result of mental illness Very and probably some kind of uh, gullibility on the part of the masses. And for me, I think... Growing up in the Northeast as well, you're kind of surrounded by a lot of a lot of atheists, a lot of non-believers, especially in like Boston and urban centers. And so I kind of assumed that was the reasonable way to look at the world. And then 
slowly started to realize that uh, actually most of the world doesn't think that way. Mm. Most of the world actually believes in uh, a religion of one form or another, or even if people don't believe in, in a specific religion, they oftentimes believe in certain supernatural beliefs, mm-hmm. even, even the notion of karma or fate or luck even. Simple kind of common notions have a sort of supernatural quality to them. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of uh, a magical common sense that, that pervades the, the, the human psyche, and it's something that I became really fascinated with because I couldn't really understand why people would would believe in God or believe in these uh, seemingly crazy worldviews that went against everything that science has kind of shown us about uh, the functioning of the world. What you said about uh, kind of being fascinated by a really good story, I think part of part of my attraction to religions was the kind of fantastical element of them. Mm-hmm. That in a way you are looking into people's minds and you're seeing real fantasies. Mm. Like people live and die and kill and care by these myths and by these stories. It's like coming up every, I think every time I get get the chance to explain the Gnostic mythos to somebody, like I've got a grin on my face. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, it's so, it's so fascinating. (laughs) The epic story of of this false god and and the kind of redemption of the world through all these, these, these little sparks. There's, there's something about religious narratives that give a color to to reality and on you know not even talking about the 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 very practical philosophical and psychological fruits of various traditions there's just something something enchanted about them sure and they can be animating there's something to be said entirely for for the power of those stories to to enchant but also like to motivate you to put things into practice i guess Mm -hmm. is what i mean yeah Speaking about the practicality of religious tradition, we've been recently kind of passing back and forth this book uh, by Suzuki, uh, Beginner's mm-hmm. Mind, mm-hmm. and yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about you know the value of uh, applied Buddhist practice. Sure, yeah, I mean, I, I I just find it to be a really pragmatic, like simple, useful tool. That worldview I and mean, that approach to the moment to moment of life to be just just simply useful in uh, in what it claims to be an ending suffering this is funny it gets ineffable and it's also just so broad but it's also so simple of just like modifying expectations and simply accepting things not reacting to things unconsciously or with too much passion in either direction i find that that just gives me patience again patience with other people that guy who's cutting you off in traffic and with when the internet goes out and with myself when i maybe don't live up to my own expectations or yeah yeah for me one of the one of the things that i really love about about buddhism besides the you know uh, the practice of, of meditation is also just this kind of the the philosophical toolkit that comes with it as well sure. what i love about zen buddhism is the reliance on or the the utilization of koans these kind of mm. philosophical you know riddles that in a sense are meant to defy logic or meant to get you beyond 
um, conventional logic. One example uh, is that that koan about the lumberjack in the woods where he's trying to uh, catch the satori, which is this kind of, it's a, both a mythical creature, but also is supposed to be symbolic of uh, a kind of a moment of enlightenment. He tries to run after it, tries to catch it, never able to, to reach the satori. And it's making fun of him, and he's and it's kind of uh, laughing at him. And you know, eventually, the lumberjack says, "You know, forget it. I don't, I don't need you." He turns around and starts chopping his tree. And as soon as he starts to chop, the head of his hammer flies off his stick, and it hits the satori in the head and kills it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this this really beautiful funny and and also deep kind of metaphor for one of the, one of the central points of, of zen buddhism is like don't try too hard sure and too hard i like i like that story too because that it's always an interesting balance between trying to like it's it's easy to say like oh always be present that'll solve all of your problems but of course you have to plan you have to work on things right there's problems to solve and that's a real part of life but i love that story because it's like no try and solve your problem try and get him but then if it becomes a major frustration, maybe turn away and, and focus mm-hmm. on something else for a minute. Perhaps that approach you have is probably the part of the problem in itself. Mm-hmm. I think also at talking about kind of the broader philosophic things about Buddhism that, that I'm interested in, I, I don't even know if I would really call myself a Buddhist. It's just that that seems to fit and that those Buddhist authors or thinkers are usually ones that because of the ethical and philosophical framework of it are what falls in line best with myself. And I think something else that really drew me to that was the the emphasis on service to others. Mm-hmm. And also the idea, the kind of the interdependency of, of happiness for all beings in Buddhism is something that I agree with and that, that attracted me. This idea that by that key to your own happiness is improving the happiness of others and that that by working but then conversely by working on yourself you're also working on others as well but that we're all interconnected you know and i think that just in my own path because it wasn't like i sat down one day and was like i want to be a buddhist now or i want to be interested in this it was like i said honestly strategies for just making myself happy and being a teacher i didn't even go into that as a mode of service but then i found out how good that feels to work for other people Mm -hmm. and then stumbling into that meditation is like oh wow this is actually psychologically super beneficial for me and then tapping a little bit more into like into the or going back to those philosophies and realizing that i had kind of learned these lessons independently of you know trying to be part of some tradition which i think was the most validating thing for those ideas right one of the, the the values of religious traditions there are these kind of interwoven interconnected webs of both philosophy and morality and practicality you come for the meditation but then you're drawn in (laughs) by the compassion and then you start to realize there are philosophical things here and then there's also some uh, some great stories to to and i think if it's worthwhile they all work together and that's i think that's what i really enjoy obviously like mindfulness is a a fad now Mm -hmm. but what i think is interesting about that practice is that like I say it's purely psychological, but that's also a definite anti-Zen thing to say in a sense, because if you're just saying, oh, it's purely psychological, obviously it's implying that I know what mind is, and I know what is psychological and what Mm -hmm. is not psychological, so Mm -hmm. I'm drawing up these categories immediately by even saying that, which are antithetical to the mindset that I'm professing to enjoy, (laughs) or something (laughs) by, and so... And that's one of the the things about 
about Zen Buddhism that, that it also is, is very very attractive to me is that it's it strives to be non-categorical. It strives to to really challenge and and defy categorization. Sure. And, um, but I guess what I meant about yeah, like the, that they're all working together. That once you start something's a cohesive, a useful system, I think you you can't you yeah, you can't take one without the other, or the, the involving yourself. Just like I was saying, involving myself in that practice of sitting suddenly made me realize that I also agreed with all these other things because of the changes that were taking place inside of me, or because of my my, my perspective. Then made me be like, oh, interesting. That's making me see the concept of karma in a different way than I ever did before, and. I previously would have not been interested in thinking about that, but then like, oh wow, really? Okay, giving you an impetus to dig a little bit deeper and then realize, yeah, yeah, that there's, there's fruit in there. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. there's fruit that that on the surface or on first blush, you know, may may not seem yeah, sure, sure, quite, quite as delicious as it yeah. uh, ends up being. <laughs> One thing I want to want to ask you about as well is we've recently been just, uh, talking about the assumption that sometimes happens with the kind of concept of enlightenment that when you are when you reach it or when you're when you're striving towards it that there's a kind of total change that happens and and in some traditions of Buddhism there there is actually a very supernatural emphasis on the attainment uh, of enlightenment and what happens afterwards. But not that that doesn't seem to be quite the case in in Zen Buddhism. Mm. And one koan that actually I think really does a good job of emphasizing this is it goes like this: Before enlightenment, uh, chop wood, carry water. <laughs> After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Yeah, and that's that's like right now. That's what I find so refreshing about it that it's it's attainable. It's it's about I think I've said it like ten times, but just nuts and bolts, nothing special, as, as Suzuki says in that book, which I think is like I said to me just why I've ended up being interested in it because it's immediately applicable. It doesn't exclude things or exclude people. And also, I mean, just getting you more deep, obviously, like, it seems that if you're the whole concept of, of awaiting some massive transformation, again, kind of seems contrary to the idea of seeing what's happening here and now, which is, you know, should be the whole point. It makes me think of that story that I was telling you recently about, about the Buddha having this discussion with his, with his, one of his students or one of his disciples, and the disciple was talking about asking him about the ultimate nature of reality and I think of like the existence of God. One of these metaphysical big old questions that we don't have access to. And he was demanding that the Buddha tell him the answer to to this question. The Buddha wouldn't answer and the guy's like, you don't answer because you don't know. And the Buddha just responds with, look, imagine if some guy was shot with an arrow and he was bleeding out and he was about to die and a physician comes up to him and says I can pull this arrow out and I can save your life and the man who's injured refuses to let the doctor pull the arrow out unless he can be told exactly where the arrow came from who shot it what it was made from and all of these things like would you den- would you would you deny having your life saved by this because you couldn't be you couldn't have all of your questions answered mm-hmm. and i think that that's why any of this is useful to me because it seems like life is short 
and and it seems like if anything is going to be useful to you it should be immediately useful and i guess looking back on my like growing up in the church one of my biggest problems with it was are we wasting our entire lives um you know holding out for some possible reward in the afterlife which kind of led me to i made made me always feel that yeah something's going to be useful it's got to be useful now and that's why yeah i definitely enjoy like the idea of enlightenment not being something something that even you have to wait your whole life for but rather something that is kind of not really the point almost Mm. sure Um, and it's a tricky thing because i think you know as i'm like start stumbling as i talk about this but i think it's because just to talk about it it doesn't sound like that much but like i swear when you (laughs) you know (laughs) i know you know um you know that that it's like it's 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 an interchange that that like just simply does happen but it's not like a promise of faith that you have to you know you have to have faith like a second mm-hmm. you, know, you have to have just enough faith to sit down yeah for right? sure the last thing is a segment that i want to do at the end of every episode where i ask the person that i'm interviewing for a word or a concept that um, doesn't currently exist in the secular vocabulary either replacement for uh, a word like soul, spirit, or some, a concept or a word that just doesn't exist in uh, any religious vocabulary, but is something that would be useful to name. And I wonder if you have a concept or, or a word like that. Oof. Man, to create or delineate a new category for it to be named, or I don't know. I was thinking about this a lot, and I think the best I can come up with is just doing dishes. <laughs> just doing dishes. And okay, not, so, not, so. not that that hasn't been talked about in Buddhism like billions of times. <laughs> By no means am I the first person to use that metaphor or analogy, rather. But, but, but say more. What do you mean by by that? That these things, at their best for me, are just maintenance tools. I shouldn't say just maintenance tools, but maintenance tools. That they're the most useful. These things to me can be are things that really tangibly help humans in a in, a, in an immediate day to day way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I also think that it's not really useful unless it's at, unless it's useful in something as simple as doing dishes or the equivalent of doing dishes. You know what I mean? Like something you're gonna have to do as mm-hmm. just as a person every day. And you know, my question is always, is this helping with that? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we might even be able to paraphrase that koan: uh, before enlightenment, doing dishes; <laughs> after enlightenment, doing dishes. Sure. <laughs> All right, Owen, thank you so much for being part of the show. And, Thanks for having uh, me. Yeah, absolutely. Great conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. You can find the show notes for this episode on our website, reenchantmentpod.com. If you like the message of this podcast, please, please, please subscribe and let one other friend know about the podcast. This is a young show, and like most things, it needs love in order to grow. Thank you, and see you next time on Reenchantment.